Weighing Machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market glamour to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. The Weighing Machine is inspired by the classic investing saying attributed to Benjamin Graham. The stock market is a voting machine in the short term and a weighing machine over the long run. In other words, emotion and expectations drive short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations determine returns over time. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. Enjoy, and as always, let us know what you think. On the podcast today, as the country returns to normal, what's our market and economic outlook for a post-COVID world? We will also discuss what it takes to be a certified financial planner, the merits of the CFP credential, and the importance of fiduciary standards. That's with our guest, Skip Swice, president of Financial Planning Association, and we're also going to talk about some hiking. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman. And I'm Robin Murray. Okay, let's start with a look at the markets. They keep going up. What are we watching for at the moment? It's another amazing quarter. We're doing this right after quarter end, and the U.S. market was up another 8%. For the year, it's up 15%. Over the last year, it's up nearly 45%. The average stock is even doing better. So for the year, it's up 22%, and over the last year, 65%. These are crazy good numbers. There is a problem to it though, and something you ask what I'm watching for, and there was a study that came out over the last week from a firm called Netixis, N-A-T-I-X-I-S, and we'll put a link in the show notes to this, but they surveyed individual investors and the average return expectation now for individual investors is for 17.5% per year after inflation. Oh my. So yeah, we've got a we've got an issue. I mean, uh, just for a frame of reference, and this is another thing for the show notes because I love this resource. But it's the Credit Suisse Global Investment Returns Yearbook. It comes out early each year. It's basically a companion piece to what I've always called is the ultimate office lobby coffee table book for financial planners and, and advisors, called the Triumph of the Optimist. But anyway, they show what the annual return is after inflation going back 121 years, and it's 5%. So again, 17.5 versus 5%. I think that's going to be something that financial advisors are going to have to work with in the months and quarters ahead. Well, before we get to our guest, I wanted to ask you about what's happening around the country, which is that emergency orders are being lifted, events and activities are opening up, everything's sort of returning to full capacity. And it feels, at least here in the U.S., not everywhere in the country, in the world, that life is sort of returning to normal. And it's interesting to look back now and think about, you know, how much has really changed in such a short period of time. So I guess I'm feeling reflective and I want to know what are you thinking about these days in terms of the long-term impact of the pandemic? I think you know you're going to get a glass half full mm, Well, usually. consideration of this question here. Yeah, so I actually think a couple of things. One, I think in terms of, of how we work, and I think that People will go back to the office. We will get back on airplanes, but I think there will be much more flexibility in how people do their work. And ultimately, I think we'll be happier, more productive for it. I think another thing too is, obviously, even though there are plenty of anecdotes about people not being healthy during the lockdown, I think there's been more emphasis on health. And I think quality and quantity of life will also improve moving forward. So you add that all up, we're gonna be working and living a lot longer. 
And that's a big reason why we need financial plans. Wow. That's the segue to skip. How about that? <laughs> Nicely done, Rusty and Robin. All right. All right. Well, we're going to officially introduce him now. Our guest, Skip Schweiss, president of the Financial Planning Association in Colorado. Skip, welcome to the weighing machine. It's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, well, it's good to have you. So you have been working in the financial services industry for more than 30 Wait years. Wait a second, Robin. I no, hate to I was, interrupt you. I was going to jump to you. Don't worry. I would not <laughs> oh, leave Oh, you were? Out. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I could not leave out the most important traditional opening question, which I'm going to hand to you, Rusty. You're going to hand it to me? Okay, great. So, okay, Skip. So a standard question on this Wang Machine podcast, and arguably the most important question is... What is that walk-up song? What is that song we can hear in the background as you step up to the plate for these hardball questions you're about ready to face? So my walk-up song is a little bit off the beaten path. I'm a, a big fan of a uh, Canadian band, which unfortunately doesn't really exist anymore, Rush. But they published a song in, I want to say 1978, called Something for Nothing. And what, what it's all about is you can't have something for nothing. And, you know, that is true in a variety of, of areas of our life. We're uh, around Independence Day as we record this, and uh, many have given much that we might have freedom. That freedom wasn't free, as we like to say. And it's like in the markets. You don't get 17.5% returns guaranteed above inflation. I mean, you might some years, obviously, in the last year or so, yes. But nothing is free is, is what that's all about. I like it. Well considered. I like it. All right. Well, yes, you have a, have a 30-year career, Skip, in the financial services industry. You worked at Fiserv Trust Company for more than 20 years, and that was then acquired by TD Ameritrade. You worked there for another 12 years. So I want to hear about your career both places. But first, I want to know about what you're doing today. You're the president of the Financial Planning Association, and your LinkedIn profile says you are fun employed. So what do you do at FPA? <laughs> So let's start with what I do at FPA. I am 2021 president of the association. We have about 19,000 members, financial planners around the country, and I'm responsible for kind of steering the ship. It's far from a one-person act. I'm one of 13 members of the national board, and we have 81 chapters around the country, and they all have volunteer leaders running them, as well as professional administrative people who uh, help organize a lot of the uh, the content, the the meetings and things like that. And it's, uh, it's frankly a pretty big job that my wife asked me periodically, how much are you getting paid for this work you're doing now? <laughs> Great big goose egg, but uh, it's part of, part of giving back to the profession and I love it. And that makes, that makes you fun employed, right? Oh, fun employed. Yeah. Uh, so I left TD Ameritrade last summer. I was responsible for our retirement plan servicing business and we had spun that off or most of that to Broadridge. And then, of course, the whole company was getting sold to Schwab. And so I left the company last summer. And when I disclosed that to my family, my two daughters said, Dad, you're going to be fun employed. And I thought I had never heard that term before, but it's kind of turned out that way. I've, I've spent much more time doing things I love, spending time with uh, loved ones, especially, as you mentioned at the top, that things have opened up a little bit more. And I've been able to get out on my bike more, and I think Rusty wants to talk a little bit about hiking. I've been able to do a lot more of that. I skied more this winter than I ever have before, so I I have been fun employed the last few months. I was going to say that for sure. I mean, on social media, I can definitely tell you're being fun employed right now. <laughs> so I did have a question because you are, you're a mountain man. 
you ski, you climb mountains. I just want to know, what are your favorites? What are your favorite mountains to ski? What have been your favorite trails to hike? And you've done a lot of cool stuff. So it'd be really interesting to hear what your favorites are. Yeah. So I've, I've managed to get myself to the top and more importantly, back down the 54, 14,000 foot peaks in Colorado. I've done a number on the West Coast, Mount Whitney, Half Dome, Shasta, Rainier, Baker Hood. Some friends and I have traveled internationally. We've done Mount Fuji in uh, Japan and Tanzania and rather Kilimanjaro in Tanzania. We attempted a 21,000 footer in Argentina last year and the weather gods had other ideas up high, but that happens. But skiing, I, I mainly ski Colorado. I Copper Mountain in Colorado is my main mountain. It just, I've over a long period of time, I've kind of settled into that mountain. It's accessible. It's right off I-70. It's about 20 miles east of Vale. Easy for me to drive up there, ski the day and drive home and be home for dinner. And the mountain has a great variety of terrain. So that's not the only place I ski, but that's where most of the time I find myself. I love to road bike and I'll do that all over Denver. Denver has a great set of trails for biking, so I don't have to be out on streets dodging cars. And uh, hiking-wise, boy, I've hiked many, many thousands of miles, at least a few dozen of those, Rusty, with you, maybe maybe even a few hundred, mm-hmm. I don't know. People ask me what my favorite hike is, and I, have, I keep coming back to Four Pass Loop, which will mean nothing to your listeners, but it's a 28-mile loop outside of Aspen, Colorado that goes among about four 14,000 foot peaks and it's an 8,000 vertical foot hike. Uh, It's really, most people will do it in about a three day backpacking trip. And I've done it a handful of times in a day. And it is one exhausting day for at 28 miles and 8,000 vertical feet, but it's beauty. It sounds easy. (laughs) now in full disclosure we have done five hikes together and all of them have been amazing and could you just tell us a little bit about that it's it is the chip and skip excellent adventure and it is excellent every year but i'll let you talk about it. yeah so some years ago my friend chip rome as we were getting to know each other he discovered that i was a hiker trekker mountaineer and he said you know that's great i've always wanted to do mount whitney And I said, well, I have two. It's kind of on my bucket list. It's the highest in the lower 48 at 14,500 feet. So we made plans to go to Mount Whitney. And I thought it was going to be Chip and me. And Chip is a very social animal. And I realized that Chip invited 11 of his friends. So there were 13 of us who did Mount Whitney one day, decade or so ago. And we had so much fun. We said, "This, this is really great. We should just make this an annual event. And then at some point it became known as, as you just mentioned, Chip and Skip's Excellent Adventures. And so we've done the Grand Canyon. We've done Mount Washington and New Hampshire. We've done the Kalalau Trail in Kauai, which I know you did. We've hiked in Alaska uh, through the Chugach Wilderness, dodging bears. Where else have we gone? We did the Four Pass Loop in Colorado. We did Mount Shasta. The Presidential Range in New Hampshire. Uh, New Hampshire. The Presidential Range, yes. Presidential Traverse. Palm Springs on one of the hottest days ever in Palm Springs even. (laughs) Yeah, we did. Cactus to Clouds Trail, which goes from 400 feet above sea level in Palm Springs to the top of Mount San Jacinto at 10,800 feet. So it's a 10,000 foot day. And it was 118 in Palm Springs that day. We left at 90, or rather at midnight, trying to avoid the heat. And it was 99 degrees when we departed Palm Springs. But we did that one. And this is our 10th anniversary, our 10th year. And we're going to Glacier National Park in northwest Montana. I had not been until Chip and I went about a week ago to kind of scout it out. 
the trail and the area. And I have to say, for all these hikes I've done around the country, short of Alaska, it might be the most beautiful place in America as far as mountain splendor. It's really, really a special place. And, you know, we usually get about 30 people to join us on these these weekends. I don't know if it's because of pent up wanting to get out or the attraction of Glacier, but we have 63 people signed up right now to to join us in Glacier. So it's going to be great. Somebody's going to be selling a lot of bear spray up there. <laughs> All righty. Well, enough hiking. Let's let's uh, switch gears. So I'm not going to join you guys on any of those. So darn. That sounds way too hard. But it does sound fun. But Chip, you are a certified financial planner, and we have a lot of financial advisors who listen to this podcast. Some may also be CFPs, others may not. Can you tell us more about the CFP credential and its benefits in your work? I, I was on the FINRA website recently, and FINRA on its website has, they list 212 professional designations, 212. And the CFP is one of those, but the CFP is one of only, I think maybe five or so that are accredited. It's not easy to get. I got mine last year. I spent, I kept track of my study hours. I spent 750 hours studying for my CFP exam for a period of about nine months. And then you have to get 30 hours of continuing education every two years, including in ethics. So the CFP is not something you take a a two-hour webinar and then take a quiz, and now you've got those letters behind your name. It's far more difficult than that. It's really, I think, recognized as the gold standard for financial planning. It has the CFP board behind it that oversees and makes sure people get their continuing education and, and are maintaining adherence to a code of ethics. Long time ago in the profession, FPA, the organization I volunteer for, made a statement that was pretty simple, one profession, one designation. So the profession of financial planning centered around the CFP designation because it really is the gold standard, hard to get, hard to keep, and really means a lot. So most of our members are CFPs who provide financial planning services to their clients. And, uh, you know, like with all walks of life, there are bad apples in every barrel. I know there are are good financial planners who are not CFPs. I know a handful of those. I know there, there are also occasionally bad apples who are CFPs. And in fact, just recently, the CFP board announced some sanctions against a couple dozen CFPs out of its 88,000, I think. But we think it's the gold standard. We think that that investors and consumers can look to it with confidence that if they're dealing with the CFP, they're dealing with someone who's really jumped through some hoops to uh, attain that level of professionalism. So you would likely encourage other financial advisors who have not got that credential. I certainly do. To pursue it. Yeah. And it depends. It depends a little bit on, you know, do I intend to just advise people on their investments or maybe it's not as important to get your CFP then. But if I intend to do financial planning and advising people on their insurance and their retirement planning and their kids' college funding and their estate planning and wills and so on, I, I think it would be very good uh, advice to get your CFP. I got to jump in real quick here. And this kind of came up just since we set up this this podcast interview. And there's this daily email that comes out and it's by this. And he calls himself a grumpy German. His last name is Clement, K-L-E-M-E-N-T. We'll put this in the show notes too. And I recommend it because it's usually thought provoking and it's short. 
and he usually links to different articles, but he just had one on financial planning like yesterday. And I thought it was really cool and I'm gonna write it up and definitely talk about it as well. But I'm, I gotta read my notes here cause I'm actually putting in my monthly commentary as well. I liked it that much. But he made one of the studies and the study, the author's name were Anna Marie Lusardi and Olivia Mitchell. And I think this study was, it's actually 10 years old. And they made a distinction between non-planners who do no planning, simple planners. So these people basically know, you know, how much of their income to save each month of each year. Then there's serious planners, people who actually have a financial plan. And then there are successful planners. These are people who have a financial plan and actually execute upon it. Well, anyway, they found in terms of actually building net wealth by retirement that the more planning you did, the more successful you're going to be. It seems pretty obvious, right? But actually, just even making the move from no plan at all to just being a simple planner increased your net wealth by a factor of two to three. Extraordinarily powerful. And by the time you get to serious planning, you add another 25 to 35% in extra wealth. So you think about all the work we do on investment management, and of course I think it's important because I'm an investment manager, but you could say the financial planners have way more of an impact. That's powerful, and as you point out, it's simple. You know, I have friends who sometimes will ask me, they know I'm in the field. I'm not a practicing financial planner, but they know I'm in the planning and advice fields. And they'll ask me about, you know, financial planning tips or important points. And, you know, I could distill it down. You, I think one of your categories was was the, or the, what was that? The cranky German or the cranky German? Yeah. His you can tell from my last name. I'm also German, <laughs> but I'm not cranky. So uh, anyways, <laughs> you know, rule number one is to spend less than you make. You know, you in terms of yeah. simple financial planning, you can do a whole lot worse than just that one. And I've told my kids that I have three young adult children and, you know, so many, you know, in America, we're very consumerist. We love to buy our things, our electronics and our cars and our houses and our vacations and and on and on and on. And, and sometimes it becomes a keep up with the Joneses routine. And well, so-and-so has got a bigger house or a nicer car or went on this great vacation. I need to do that too, uh, which is well and good if you can afford it. And if you're looking ahead to your future, but uh, I go back to the, you know, pay yourself first, set aside whatever percent, 10, 15% of your income all the time, I know for some people that's easier said than done if you're really scratching to get by, but that, that to me is simple planning. Well, one other question on the CFP and how does that differ from the accredited investment fiduciary or AIF? Yeah, so I'm also an AIF. I know the folks at FI360 been at firms that have done some business with them and offered their programs to our clients. So really believe in that as well. It's another professional certification that uh, designed to demonstrate that your advisor has really understood the principles of acting in a fiduciary capacity, the F in AIF, that they've met certain requirements and certain educational levels and continuing education to prove that they, on a continuous basis, really understand and adhere to fiduciary principles and giving advice. So it's another Really good professional designation and one of the few, again, that are accredited on that long list of 212 that the FINRA website shows. So, Skip, your career, which again included being serving as president of TD Ameritrade Trust Company, uh, has been focused on serving the needs of registered investment advisors and increasing the awareness of financial advice delivered with a fiduciary standard of care. 
My question is, what does it mean being an advocate? What does that work really mean? And, and before you answer, let me just establish your credibility even more. So you've done such things as influence a lot of legislation, a lot of important stuff like the Secure Act of 2019, the Tax Cut and Jobs Act of 2017, the DOL Conflict of Interest Rule, the SEC Regulation Best Interest, among others. You've also been named the Fiduciary of the Year. So now your credibility has been established. What does it mean to be an advocate? So I think all of us understand what it means to be an advocate in our everyday life. You know, I'm advocating for my child in school or I'm advocating for my spouse or advocating for this nonprofit that I really believe in, something like that. In this arena, the public policy arena, as it impacts advisors and planners, it means to advocate for them, for their businesses and and for their clients as well. And, you know, we live in a in a financial services world that's heavily regulated and it probably should be because it's it's kind of murky to the consumer. And yet all consumers consume financial services. I mean, if you have a checking account, you're a financial services consumer. But it's a field that and a set of services that not many consumers understand very well. So and then the other side of that is advisors are not likely to have the time or inclination to get on a plane and go to Washington when a big bill is being debated to meet with members of Congress or regulators to to provide that input. So a long time ago, TD Ameritrade, my former firm, decided to dedicate resources to doing that for advisors. I was asked to, to assume that role in I think it was 2010. So I've been doing that for about a dozen, almost a dozen years now. And we would do the, uh, you know, when there's a proposed law or regulation that comes out, often it's 500 to even 2,000 pages long. And again, our advisors can have time to read that. And it's very legalese. And so I like to read. So I would get the job of, of reading those. And then we would distill it down into summary, like 10-page summaries for advisors. Or we would do webinars with third-party experts on what this all means. We would listen to advisors. What do you think about this? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it could it be better with some tweaks? And then we would go to Washington and we would share that input and that feedback with with policymakers. And you mentioned some of the bills. There was an example. We all remember Bernie Madoff. All you have to do is say that name, and we we know what that means. He perpetrated this fraud, and within a year, which was lightning speed for the SEC, I complimented Chairman Mary Shapiro later about that. They had the custody rule in place, which said if you're an advisor and you have custody of client assets, you need to get a surprise annual outside exam from an accounting firm. And in the proposal, they said if you could debit your advisory fee from the custody account, that meant you had custody. Well, that would mean that pretty much every advisor in America had custody and would have to get this exam. We pointed out that we had sufficient controls in place as the custodian to prevent any malfeasance in that fee debiting process. And the SEC agreed with us in its final rule and even cited our our input on that and dropped that provision. So that's one of many. You mentioned the SECURE Act. We thought it was a good idea. You mentioned earlier, Rusty, people are living longer, working longer. Should they have to take money out of their retirement account at age 70 and a half? A lot of people are still working at age 70 and a half now and maybe don't want to take money out and maybe push them into a higher tax bracket with their earned income. So we were one of many who advocated for pushing that up to 72. And now there's a bill pending to push that to 75, which I think would be a good idea as well. In the Tax Cut and Jobs Act of 2017, they wanted 
there was a proposal to either eliminate or cut in half the deduction for putting money into retirement plans. In a nation that's underfunded for retirement, we thought that was a pretty bad idea. So we joined a coalition of a lot of entities that argued against that, and ultimately that was dropped in the final bill. So those are a handful of examples of what advocacy means in this context. Wow, that's a big, some big stuff. I would not want to read those reports. <laughs> I would not. I'm, I'm glad you did it. I'm hey, I have a question. So you spent a lot of time in D.C. In your opinion, and I know you're not in D.C. as much as you once were, but in your opinion, how do you think the political environment has changed in recent years for advisors and investors? Yeah, to state the obvious, I guess, number one, it's gotten a lot more partisan in the last You know, it's hard to put your finger on when that started exactly, but I don't know, the last 10, 20 years, it seems like it's gotten a lot more partisan. Uh, It's frustrating to me because it just seems like the uh, Congress in particular, they're more interested in getting reelected sometimes than in passing good policy that can move the country in a better direction. Hate to sound that cynical, but there's some of that. That's a German in you. (laughs) It might be. (laughs) Hey, I'm German too. I can say that. (laughs) Yeah. You can say that to me. (laughs) I was raised by parents who were very strong supporters of one of the political parties. And within two years of me starting this role in Washington, I dropped that and went to independent because, quite honestly, I... uh, Both parties leave a lot to be desired, in my opinion, in terms of how they practice politics. But let's move beyond my cynicism uh, (laughs) and get back to your question. You know, another way we get changes in administration and changes in the makeup of Congress, which we've seen here in uh, January of this year. And I don't think I'm being too partisan or anything to say that Democrats in general believe more. They place more chips on the side of consumer protection than in standing up for business or minimizing the regulatory burden on business. I always go into offices and and we will always try to work into the conversation. My philosophy is maximum consumer protections consistent with a reasonable regulatory level of regulatory burden on the providers. If you burden the providers so heavily that they can't even provide the services, you haven't done consumers any good either. So you've got to balance those out somehow. Republicans tend to come down more on the side of reducing regulatory burdens, Democrats tend to come down on the side more of consumer protections. And so now you have Democrats controlling the White House and Congress. And the White House is not just the White House, it's the executive branch, which includes the regulatory bodies like DOL, SEC, and others. And so you're going to see, I think, a more activist consumer protection focused set of proposals coming out of Washington here in the next, you know, one, two, three, four years. So that's a change you're going to see as well from, say, the prior administration and when the Congress was split. Well, Skip, I also want to ask you, outside of Washington and all the political trends, what do you see as some of the primary trends for the financial advice industry? You know, one that's been going on for a long time, there's a real secular change from commissions to fees. Financial advisors have to get paid. They're professionals. They, you know, they have mortgages and insurance and utilities and send their kids to college and go on vacation. Just like everyone else, they've got to get paid for their work. They provide a value, valuable service. They could get paid by commissions or fees, and fees can take a variety of structures. We've seen this long-term trend toward, from commissions to fees in part because the commission environment does have a conflict of interest that the fee environment does not. 
in that if you come to me and you've just left your company and you've got your 401k and you've got a, a pretty tidy nest egg there and you're not sure what to do with it because you've just left your company and I'm your advisor and I have sitting on my shelf one product that pays me a 4% commission and one product that pays me a 6% commission and one product that pays me an 8% commission. And oh, by the way, yesterday in the mail, I got my daughter's tuition bill. I'm a human being and human beings respond to incentives and I'm, I'm conflicted there in what product I recommend. And candidly, we see there are products out there that might not be bad products necessarily, but they're high commission and they tend to get recommended probably more than they should because they're high commission, not because the product is in the best interest of the consumer. So I don't say that as a blanket statement, and I'm not a person who says commissions are bad, fees good. The fee model has its conflicts too. If I come to you and say, I'm, I'm going to retire, but I still owe $200,000 on my mortgage, do you, I'm thinking about taking that money out of my portfolio to pay off my mortgage because I, I want to be debt-free in retirement. Boom, you've got a conflict. If I'm asking you, my advisor, what should I do? Because I'm going to take a pay cut if I advise you to take that money out of the portfolio. So there's conflicts everywhere. I think the RAA model has fewer conflicts than the, the broker model, the commission model. I think there's a place for both of them. But to get back to your question, Robin, we, we have seen this huge shift toward fee. I think even some of the big wirehouses now are generating half their revenues from fees as opposed to commissions. And I think in the independent broker dealer side, some of the firms are north of 50% now. So big trend there. I think there's more of a trend toward financial planning as opposed to just pure investment advice. I know I, as a consumer, yes, I need investment advice from a, from a professional, but I also need advice on insurance and retirement and estate planning and all of that. And I think also that if I'm a client of a financial planner, I'm getting a real broad range of services. I'm more likely to stay with that planner, I think, than, gee, my advisor only got me 20% this year and the market returned 25. So I think I'm going to find a new advisor. So those are a couple trends I see. A third I'll add and wrap up this question with is I'm really excited to see the growth of financial planning programs in the universities. And, you know, traditionally the pipeline was people would, let's say, join a wirehouse because they get a salary for two years while they're building their business and getting trained and licensed. And then later, once they kind of got good at the business and built up a, a good group of clients, they might move to the independent broker-dealer model where they could retain more of their income and run, the, run their business more as their business. And then they, later, they might go RIA. We're starting to see more young people now just go straight into planning slash RIA. And I think that's really great. It's a hard way to start. And most people don't do it just opening their own shop, but uh, going to work for a firm. But there are a lot of career paths there, really encourage a lot of young people to, to check it out. And it's not all about numbers and money and sales. There's, there's a lot of different roles in the business. So those are some trends we see. Right. And thinking about those young people considering careers, what other advice do you have for them as they consider being a financial advisor or financial planner going to the industry generally? Yeah. So first of all, I don't, I'm a huge believer in personal financial education and I don't think we do a good enough job of that in this country. I mean, I can go K through 12 plus four years of college and probably not have had a required course in personal financial planning. We know doctors and dentists who get out of you know eight years of school and they're still a mess financially, even setting aside their six-figure student loan debt. They don't know how to deal with 
personal finance. So we need to do a better job there. But I would urge young people to check out the financial planning programs at a lot of these universities. There are dozens of them now. Check out career paths in the, in the field. You know, every person, as they look at what kind of career they want to have, they have different interests and, and beliefs and they were brought up differently. Financial planning, as I said a minute ago, it's not all about sales. It's not all about numbers. It's not all about money. It's about helping people. And there are a lot of different fields. I, I came up, you know, I've spent 30 years on the custody side of the business. I never was a financial advisor, but I've dealt with thousands of financial advisors, each who practice somewhat differently. And there are people who are in operations roles or legal and compliance roles or technology roles supporting those firms. It's a great profession and it can be lucrative as well. You can, you can make a good income doing it. So I, I just urge young people to check it out. Don't, don't just, as soon as you hear financial planning, think, oh, that's Wall Street and that's bad. And or I'm going to have to sell. I'm going to have to call all my friends. Or It's not necessarily all about that. There's a lot of different paths there. So kind of staying on this theme of becoming a financial advisor, financial planner, what do you think are the, the attributes or the qualities that make a good financial planner? Listening is the first word that comes to my mind. Ask questions and listen. Every human being is different. Every human being's situation is different. And it's not all, all about the money in the portfolio. People need different kinds of insurance and they might believe in different levels of deductible and different coverages there. Everyone, when they are building their estate plan, has different ideas about how they want to leave you know, their legacy. So listen to them. You might have someone who is spending money in ways that you, you as the advisor may not, you might look at and say, what? I think non-judgmental as well. You know, perhaps that person has a, uh, a young adult or teen child that has a substance addiction and they're spending a lot of money on, on rehab or something like that. That's fairly prominent in our society today. Listen with empathy, understand, don't judge and design your advice proposals around that person's life and helping them get where they want to go and not you not judging where you think they should go but helping them advise them on how they can get how they can use their money to help them get the life that they ultimately want. Okay, let's shift now to the other side of the table. So, on the other side of the table from the financial planner is the the client, the investor. What are the good attributes of being a good client? So, go in with eyes wide open, ask questions. We've all heard that rule number 1 in investing is if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. We've all seen pitches for guaranteed, or maybe they don't use the word guaranteed, maybe they do, you know, guaranteed 8%, 10%. We all know that the only thing guaranteed, the closest thing to guaranteed, it might be an FDIC insured savings account or a, a treasury bill or, or note or bond. And we all know those are not paying, you can't find 2% out there. So if you hear something that says guaranteed 6 or 8%, you better start either turn and run immediately or or at least if it's intriguing to you, ask questions. We, we're in this low yield era where interest rates have been rock bottom for a decade now and maybe more. And people are reaching for yield as a result, especially retirees. And that's where we start to see more recommendations around real estate investment trusts that are yielding. I don't know what they yield these days, but much higher than a bank account. Understand you're taking on risk. It goes back to my walk-up song. You can't get something for nothing. And if something is promising a return or a yield that's higher than treasuries or bank accounts, you need to ask why. 
you know, what kind of risk are they taking to, to get that return? Also, how does, how does my advisor get paid? I think is a key question. It's perfectly fine to get paid on commission in my book. It's perfectly fine to get paid on hourly fees or assets under management or a monthly subscription type fee, which is becoming more prominent. But understand what, how I'm paying for my services, how my advisor gets paid, how that form of compensation might create conflicts of interest. And in Regulation Best Interest, one of the more recent regulations, the SEC mandated a, a two-page disclosure document, and they, they said it can be no more than two pages because if it's more than two, people are less likely to read it, that it's supposed to lay out all of these things, and yet you still want to ask questions. So just have your eyes open. Don't, don't just blindly trust, especially the uh, bigger the promises seem to be. Don't be afraid to ask questions about risks and conflicts. Good stuff. You know, as, as I was asking that question, I, I do ask this question a fair amount. It is one of my favorite ones. And it also made me just remember one key ingredient to be a good investor. And it takes me back several decades. There was an advisor I worked with and he used to tell potential clients, he would often say, you can't afford to be an investor. You cannot afford to be an investor yet at least not yet. And what he was looking at is making sure they essentially had the financial plan in place. You know, did, was their debt under control? Were they saving? Did they have their insurance needs taken care of? Because he felt if they didn't have that stuff taken care of, there was no way they could be a good investor. You know, they had to have that plan in, first, in place first. That's such a great point, Rusty. And there's a, a tangent from there for me. I agree with that completely. But the financial planning profession has done a terrific job of serving the I'm probably going to just kind of make up this number, but the top 5% of, you know, in the economic class, partially because of this assets under management fee model. If you don't have, you know, at least a well into the six figures, you know, investable assets, an RA really can't afford to work with you. So I think that's a problem because I go back to my adult children, they need financial planning help, but they don't have portfolios. They're in their 20s. And, you know, they've got maybe some money in a bank account, maybe some money in a 401k, not a lot of money in either place. But what they do need advice on is, should I put more money in against my student loans or into my 401k? Should I lease a car or buy a car? How much life insurance should I have? Do I need disability insurance or health insurance or, you know, all these kinds of questions? I need a plan. How am I going to allocate the resources I have to put me in the best position financially that I can be in terms of risk management, in terms of preparing for my future. So I could not agree with that more. I'm loving these, the monthly subscription type financial planning services that are coming out. I know XY Planning is doing that. I know uh, Facet Wealth is doing that. And I think that's only going to spread. And I couldn't applaud it more because again, I think that's a way, we all pay for a lot of our services monthly. And we're used to that. And I think that's a way to get some good quality professional financial planning services into far more households. All right. Another one of my favorite questions. So obviously you have the appetite and the ability to take in a lot of information. So you're reading 100,000 page documents from the government. You're studying nearly a thousand or a hundred. Yeah. Hold it. A thousand hours for the CFP. So do you have recommendations for books or podcasts or Twitter fees? In short, what do you think advisors, investors, financial planners should be reading? For the record, I've never read a hundred thousand page government document. <laughs> I just, I just like, yeah, depending yeah, right. on the font size, it could have been. Uh, I think the longest was, um, 
I think the, uh, gosh, there was a bill that came out and I even, I'm forgetting the, the Dodd-Frank bill after the financial crisis was over 2000. That was 2100, 2200 pages. I think that was my record. And in all of that, there was about 15 pages that were really at the heart of an RIA's world. But I wouldn't urge advisors to to read that stuff. That's what you have your, you know, your custodian or your trade associations for, or podcasts like this, where you can get summaries of those kinds of things. Speaking of vast amounts of content, Michael Kitsis puts out vast amounts of content, both podcasts and I think he puts out a weekly kind of a newsletter always real high quality stuff. I've told him that I love his stuff and I'm sorry, I can't read it all. It is. It's so much. How does he do it? There's only so many hours in a day. I've read Bob Vera's newsletter, Inside Information, for I think as long as it's been published, which is probably north of 20 years. I think those are good. I read a lot of the trade publications, the ones you all know, Financial Planning and Financial Advisor and Journal of Financial Planning and Investment News and all of those. And uh, you get uh, snippets here and there on what's going on in the industry. And these days in the M&A space, especially, you get a lot of a lot of stories there. So those are the kind of things I keep up on. And I, you know, I follow certain Twitter feeds and, and things just to get that uh, kind of daily dose of uh, who's thinking what and who who's referring me to links to different papers or webcasts or things I should be seeing. Well, this has been a really interesting conversation. It's been great to have you on the show today, Skip. How can listeners stay in touch and learn more about you and the FPA? Probably easiest is uh, I'm on Twitter at at Skip Schweiss. You can email me sschweiss at comcast.net. I love to hear from people and I'm I'm a boomer, so I'm I'm, uh, more about email than I am about Instagram or, or those kinds of things. And Financial Planning Association is just financialplanningassociation.org. Lots of information there about the, the benefits you can get from discounts on products and services to these public policy issues and the stances that we're taking on those and networking opportunities, chapter meetings, national conferences, all of that. So would urge people to go check that out. Well, Skip, thanks for coming on the show. We recorded this several weeks before it was published. So, and then I think we're actually hiking together a couple of days after it's out there. So I'm really hoping you like this final product just in case we're on a trail, we hear a bear and you start running faster than me. So (laughs) just let me know what I need to edit now, please. (laughs) Well, there are plenty of bears where we're going, Rusty. So uh, we'll see who can run faster. Awesome. Well, thanks again. Good luck with that. Thanks uh, for having me. This has been a great conversation. It's been a lot of fun and you guys do great work. Thanks, Kip. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Rusty, take us out with your final words. Stay balanced and stay the course. We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening to The Weighing Machine and thank you for your time and trust in Orion Advisor Solutions. The Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Strategist at Orion Advisor Solutions, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have feedback or questions about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty at orion.com. All opinions expressed by Rusty Vanneman and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and don't reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion, its affiliate subsidiaries, and its employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information that participants consider reliable.